we have to be cognizant of the stories that we're taking in because whether we realize it or not, we're adding to our essay of who we understand or misunderstand people to be. Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. This is Annalise Corbin, Chief Goddess of the Past Foundation and your host. We hear frequently that the global education system is broken. In fact, we spend billions of dollars trying to fix something that's actually not broken at all, but rather irrelevant. It's obsolete. A hundred years ago, it functioned fine. So let's talk about how we reimagine, rethink, and redesign our educational system. So today on Learning Unboxed, we are going to talk about creating brave spaces. And this is a topic that I've been super excited uh, to be able to have a conversation about because it's so critically important in what's happening in classrooms and schools and communities today. And joining us for this conversation is Dr. Melissa Crum. Uh, so welcome, Melissa. Thank you for having me. Perfect. And so for a little bit of background and sort of context for our listeners, um, Dr. Crum is an artist, an author, a researcher, and the founder of Mosaic Education Network. And she leads a consulting company that infuses the arts, research, and storytelling and critical thinking into professional development, community building, and curriculum development. So again, um, Melissa, we are super excited to have you um, on the program and to sort of get us started today um, because our listeners come to us from all over the world um, from a variety of different backgrounds um, and educational experiences and opportunities. Uh, so let's sort of set the stage first and foremost by explaining to us exactly what Mosaic Education Network is and sort of the why you created it because we've had a lot of founders on this show um, and it's one of my favorite topics. So why did you do this thing? Yeah. Oh, okay. There's a, there's a story behind that. So I'll, I'll, always, I'll, <laughs> always. So I'll start with, I began wanting to be a digital animator. Oh, wow. I did. Yeah. yeah and I um, I started an animation program and we had the opportunity to work with DreamWorks which was really exciting. And they screened when they came to teach us uh, for that year, they screened Shark's Tale. And I don't know if you're familiar with this. Mm -hmm. this I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I, I want to say it came out in like it was early 2000s. Yeah, anyway, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So Shark's Tale is set in, under the ocean and everybody is an animal, right? Yeah. But when I watched it, I realized that the animals were racialized. I didn't have language for this. My, um, I just knew that you knew what the race or the ethnicity were of the animals without actually seeing them. And so um, Oscar was the was the the protagonist, if you will. He was voiced by Will Smith. So if you know who right. Will Smith is, yeah. then you know Will Smith is African-American. But Oscar was, we, we're supposed to see him as Black because he, he cites this like Wu-Tang lyric, which yeah, you know yeah. Wu-Tang is like hip-hop. Yeah. <laughs> and he has yeah. this like gold chain and he does this thing. Um, and then the henchmen were, uh, which were the, you know, the antagonists, they, they were jellyfish, but they had these Jamaican accents. That's right. I remember so that now. Just, yeah. And then you had the, this whole Godfather 
uh, theme with the sharks that was like stereotypical Italian. Yeah. But then Lenny didn't want to be a shark. He wanted to be a dolphin. So I found that there was like this, there's this race thing happening and there's like these trans narratives that were happening. And I was like, this feels not accurate. Like, I feel like there's something wrong here. I didn't have the language for that. And so it didn't also, feel okay to you in that moment. It didn't feel okay yeah. to nobody else. Yeah, and thank you for bringing that up because, you know, yeah, I saw it and I'm certain of being kind of quasi-aware in that moment, but I don't know that any of you just, you, we, we don't dig into that and we should. Absolutely. And I just didn't, I didn't have the words or the language. And right. I was in my program and essentially I was like, I want to figure out who, who goes through this process of determining that we're going to like lean on these stereotypes. Right. And my program was more so interesting. They're like, we don't really care about that. We just care about you. We don't care about you asking why this fish has a gold chain. We're interested in you making that gold chain as realistic as possible. As an animator and yes, not an care animator. and not get in the weeds of the politics or the understanding of the social implications of the work that you were doing. They were asking you to not care about those other pieces. It's like, we don't care. Uh-huh. <laughs> that had to be really hard. They didn't say it in that way, but yeah. essentially that's what they meant. Like yeah. so much that at the time, the chair of the department like laughed me out of his office. Like it was, it was not great. Anyway, it was not a great experience. And then the person who was said they were my advisor was like, I'm not really your advisor. And so I ended up getting removed from the program. And so they said, well, you just need to go to African-American African studies. And I was like, okay, that's not really what I came here for, but that's cool. I And so when I went to African-American African studies and to start a master's program, I was really disheveled, if you will. Like I was like, nobody has language. Nobody seems to know what I'm talking about. And so then I go to the department. They're like, oh, yeah, we've been this has been going on for a while. People have been writing books about the role of animation and how that shaped how we misunderstand or understand different groups of people. And I felt like, oh, I'm home. <laughs> like you all good. So there 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 was a there was a win at the end of this experience for you. Yeah. And <laughs> so I got my master's in African American African studies and I did my thesis on the role of animation and how that shaped how we have created narratives for different groups of people. And and the thing that these narratives are so powerful, we believe them and we have an investment in them, even if we actually haven't met these people, <laughs> right? Uh, and so I then moved from there to get my doctorate in um, art education. And so I uh, was really interested in thinking about the role of art in how to shape curriculum, how to help us think more deeply about how we understand ourselves and each other. And doing that work, I realized that I could be helping create curriculum for teachers, which is what I was really thinking about, Mm community-based curriculum. Mm -hmm. Or I can really shift to help people think about how to be better teachers. Like, how do I help you think reflectively, like really think about why are you making these choices in your curriculum? Why are you making these choices in your classrooms? So it's not just curriculum. We're seeing how the, these, these stories that we read from around our students lean into our impact, our disciplinary mm-hmm. action, our choices, choose who we say needs to go to special education or doesn't, who goes to gifted programs or not. Like, are we, so something that, especially gifted programs is such right. a, for many places, such a subjective process, mm-hmm. right? Correct. If you don't have yeah. a teacher or a parent advocating for you, then you may not even get recommended to those right. places. Right, right, right. And so, but if we have a, if we're reading from a particular narrative, 
that, oh, this student probably wouldn't be successful or whatever it might be, then we continue to perpetuate certain kinds of um, not only stereotypes, but just like pa- uh, patterns that mm-hmm. don't necessarily include um, all our students. And so then I was working with working with teachers using the museum. So using art, using all these different spaces to think through these narratives. And then folks would then ask, well, can you come to my nonprofit? Can you come yeah. to my company? Yeah. So using these different things. And I was like, of course. <laughs> You're like, wow, okay, here's the here's the space for this to all fit together. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so it's like these, so the same way these narratives about what does it mean to be a woman? What is it, what do I understand it means to be black? What does I understand it means to be an immigrant? Whatever those stories are, the same way they show up in our classroom around disciplinary actions or how we engage or disengage. It's similar when we go into a corporate setting, when we're talking about performance reviews Mm -hmm. and we're talking Mm -hmm. about hiring language, like who's the cultural fit, which is awful. Never use that phrase. Right, right, (laughs) right. Because you're essentially saying who is, who are the people that are like us? Us, And those are the people who we need. And then you're wondering why your your space isn't diverse or inclusive. Yeah. And so even though the, the kind of process shifts a little bit, it's still the same. We're operating from narratives that we're not critically thinking about and editing along the way as we mm-hmm. evolve as, as people and as we learn more. Right. Right. Wow. That is that is a awesome <laughs> origin story. And what I love about it, right, let's put my anthropology hat on here. What I love about this origin story is it has, you know, it, it has all the different components that we sort of need to say that I not only is it an engaged journey, but it's a journey that's going to have impact further down the road, even the pieces of the journey that haven't happened yet. Um, so that's that sort of the classic components that are necessary to make all of the soup work, right? So that you you, you actually want to partake. So that's awesome. awesome. And I had no idea. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate that you started this conversation talking about shark tails and hopefully, you know, DreamWorks doesn't get all, all, all twitchy on us, but we, we're going to, we'll cross that bridge when it comes because, you know, I think, you know, once you started that piece of the conversation, I started thinking about all of the animated programs that I watch or my kids watch, right? It's like, oh my gosh, wow. It's everywhere. It is. And the, and the thing is, is how do we help we talk about like helping students and, and and ways in which we kind of limit our children from seeing certain things, which there's definitely some things we probably shouldn't let our kids see. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. some of the other things are branded as as child or, or, or for young people, but it still can feed into problematic narratives. For example, one story I like to share in my workshops is around my love for Disney movies. Like mm-hmm. I love Disney movies. My brother and I, what watched uh so the movies were uh Jungle Book, Lion King, and Aladdin. And we would yeah. have the VHS tapes, you know, the I don't you I don't know if you Oh yeah. That. Oh I do. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> we had to get the ones in the plastic case. Yeah, yeah, no. I was that same kid, right? The same same era where that's how you got your movies. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. The video store. Yeah. And my brother would want to put plug it into VHS every day after school. <laughs> so I love, we love these Disney movies, but what also came with my love of Disney movies was a fear of people with British accents. 
I oh, thought yeah. they were coming to get me. I thought they yeah. were, I was nervous. I was scared. They were coming out the bushes. Yeah. And so after doing this kind of self-reflective work in this process that I support folks going through is like, where did that come from? And really when I dig into my favorite child, you know, focus stories, all of the villains in my favorite movies had British accents. Interesting. So like Scar yeah. has a British accent yeah. in the middle of the Serengeti. Why does he have a British accent? Yeah. Um, Shere Khan has a British accent yeah. in the middle of India. Like, why is that? Jafar has a British accent in what would be maybe Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So yeah. We can say that Disney was trying to help us understand like colonization and how the British Empire was taking over the world. That's not what they were doing. Essentially, they were saying that people who don't sound like you are the villains. And that's essentially what I took. Mm. That people who don't sound like me mean me harm. And the people who do sound like me are the heroes because Simba, Aladdin, Mowgli all have mm-hmm. American mm-hmm. accents. And we don't think about American accent as an accent. We just think of right. it. Right, right. Yeah, it's an accent. It is. Yeah, absolutely. No question. Yeah. Ask anybody from not from the U.S., right? (laughs) Oh, you have an American accent. Yeah. No, you do. You have an American accent. And so there and none of these stories are located in America or in Britain. Right. And so there's there's an underlying narrative that's ultimately being shared with us. Now, I'm not saying I'm anti-Lion King or Jungle Book or any of those things. But what I am saying is. We have to be cognizant of the stories that we're taking in because whether we realize it or not, we're adding to our essay of who we understand or misunderstand people to be. And if we're not aware of, wait a minute, what, what am I taking from this? Whatever the, whatever the story we're watching, whatever the TV show we're watching, whatever the book that we're, we're, we're reading is that we have to have that filter on and be aware Because that information gets added to our story, which ultimately means it helps to shape the actions that we take in response to those folks. Mm -hmm. Because the funny thing is, is that that fear of people with British accent, all that happened with me never, ever meeting someone from Britain. Wow, that's right. Yeah. And so I have this fear of someone I've never met (laughs) in a place that I've never been that I couldn't even tell you anything about. But somehow I was scared of them. Like, how does that show up when we think about uh, ethnicity and race mm-hmm. and other things? Mm-hmm. How have we been taught indirectly so many times? Because it's not like my mother or my dad or anybody was like, don't trust those British yeah. folks. Like, yeah. Nobody yeah, yeah. Said that. No one but said that, know, right? And the, reason, and the reason I think it's really important for us to really be thinking about our stories is because, as I said, they're connected to our action. But even more importantly, they're connected to our level of power. So like imagine I still have this I have this fear of British accent and now I rise to a place of power where I determine immigration laws or I rise to a position of power where um, I'm controlling curriculum. And now we don't talk about anything that deals with Britain because they're terrible people or whatever it might be, even whether I say overtly or covertly. Mm -hmm. If I still have this story that that never critiqued since the age of 10 about people with British accents and I rise to whatever level of power that I am, I'm still operating from that story. Yeah, and absolutely. It's really important for us to think about this isn't minor and uh, we have to always do that kind of internal work. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. This is one of the most fascinating conversations I've gotten to have in a really long time. So I want to start by saying, oh my gosh, awesome, loving it. But I do, before we go on to talking about sort of the Brave Spaces concept as part of your work, I, I want to ask a clarifying question because I think that folks will be really intrigued by the conversation that we're having. Mm-hmm. And I just want to be super, super clear. So here's my question, and you'll, you'll, you'll understand the reason I'm asking um, as, as we sort of go through it. So can we, can we effectively, right, tell or share these stories, right? So this, this, fictional narrative based on elements of reality. Can we do that without stereotyping? Well, I mean, the reality of it is, right? So to go back to the way you started the conversation, right, with Shark Tales, right? And so could we, right, could we have made the Will Smith character with it not have being Will Smith, right? Could we have a completely different affectation? And would that different affectation also have been a stereotype? This is the thing. The the tricky thing about stereotypes is that they're all a little bit true. Exactly. And the problem is that we stick to the little bit, right? And that's where the problem comes in. So Will Smith is, in fact, a a hip-hop artist, right? At least at one point, right? So to have Oscar visually have some connection to, uh, to that, kind of almost like we can see where the through line is, but he also was not a hip hop artist in the movie. Right. right. You know what I'm saying? So then it's like, wait a minute, what are we doing here? So what, (laughs) or the, um, the, uh, jellyfish, the, the henchmen. Mm -hmm. Um, so the, like, so yes, it's possible to, to have this kind of Jamaican accent, but we're also relegating them in this particular kind of, they're very flat characters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so what does, what does ultimately does that mean? So I think the problem when we're writing stories and we're, and everybody can't be a round character, right? We right, only do that right, to series. Right, Some people right. have to be flat characters, but in their flatness, are we pulling from stereotypes? And that's where the question comes in. Because those, Hitchman could have had any accent. They could have just right. Oh yeah, from yeah. Wisconsin. They could have yeah. been any like. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. But they chose a particular kind. Like, right. so you're. Why are we pulling in that kind of way? And yeah. I think that's where the question comes. I don't think we can fully get away from stereotypes. The question is, are we making those people complex? Are right. we aware? Are we? Are we essentially honoring their full humanity outside this limited scope? that we're providing for them. I love that. And that's the perfect way, I think, to, to phrase that. So thank you so much for that. Absolutely. So then let's let's bring this full circle and talk about the work that, that you're engaged in now, which is around Brave Spaces. And I, I can see the connection between that early experience and the founding of this organization and the work that you're engaged in now. So for, for our listeners, sort of what, what, what are you talking about when you say that, you know, we, we need to be creating brave spaces? What does that mean? Yeah. So many people talk about safe spaces. Right. And safe spaces implies that we're going to have this honest, robust conversation. We get to say what we feel and we say what's on our hearts. And everybody's going to have a great time and everybody's going to leave the conversation feeling amazing. That oftentimes does not happen. Correct. It's not Um, true. 
It's a false narrative, right? It's a false expectation too, right? We set it up to be be this thing. And we may actually believe in the moment we're having that, but we walk away from it with something completely different. Typically. Absolutely. Yeah. So when we're having difficult conversations, I don't think it's possible to have a safe space. I think safe spaces for me are likely relegated to areas where someone has a duty of care specifically, right? right? right. So right. a counselor, something like that, where it's their job to create the container and it's and it's more focused on the person who is in need of the care. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Like, to me, it's like, if you're in a duty of care, then that you are required to have this safe space for someone to be vulnerable so that you can support them in whatever that path is. But when we're talking about people who are peers, we're talking about people who are trying to have a have a conversation when they're in a shared power position, right? At least in the conversation, is no one has a has a full duty of care for the other person in the absence of their their care, right? So if I'm having a duty of care like as a as a counselor, yes, I need to be aware of how I'm being treated in this conversation, but really my my focus is on you. Right, right. So when we're when we're in tough conversations where we're both coming to this space equally, what I believe is that there's a good chance that someone's feelings are going to get hurt. Someone is going to feel uncomfortable. Someone is not going to like the way this conversation is going. And so Brave Space is saying that we may enter this conversation and I might not say the right thing. Mm -hmm. You might not say the right thing, but we're going to believe that we're coming to this conversation with positive intent, that we're Mm -hmm. using the best language that we have right now, the highest level of consciousness that we have right now, and that may not be enough for you. Interesting, yeah. And so recognizing when someone says the wrong thing, right, Mm -hmm. that we then say, okay, I'm going to believe that you're coming to this conversation with positive intent, and I'm going to also say to you, hey, that thing you just said, was hurtful. Mm -hmm. Can you consider this other language or can you consider this other perspective? And I'm going to believe you're going to come to a space with positive intent until you show me that you're actually here for harm. And then then we shift, right? (laughs) Then it's a whole nother experience and conversation, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But But I would argue that many times people are simply operating from their level of consciousness, which may not be high enough for you. And right. so that means how do we continue to engage in a, in this conversation with respect and accountability? So mm-hmm. that doesn't mean you get to say anything you want to say because we get to call each other out right. on, the, on these things. But again, believing that we are trying to get to some location of either understanding, of a greater awareness, whatever that might be. But what people tend to do when they say a place is safe is that once the, the moment they get uncomfortable, they're ready to leave. Right. And a brain right. space says, no, we're sticking in this. We're right. sticking in this and we're going to figure out how to continue this conversation in a way that we can uh, still engage in this productive way. So one thing um, I like to give folks this visual uh, imagine that we were like in the forest, you know, there's all these trees and we're going hiking. And then we see this big eight foot bear that stands up and starts growling, right? Our bodies are going to do a couple of things. It's going to do this flight, mm-hmm. fight or freeze, which we've heard, right? And so 
Um, we're going to try and fight the bear. You know, good luck with that. <laughs> not a good choice. <laughs> we're going to freeze, you know, which may also not be good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or we're going to flee, right? We're going to run. Right, right. So that thing that happens in our bodies when we see this bear is the exact same thing that happens when we're in a difficult conversation where someone is ultimately challenging our worldview and how we understand ourselves. So if I'm saying to you, hey, this thing that you just said or this perspective that you said is really harmful to trans people or right. it's really harmful in, in um, the when we're thinking about immigration or it's really harmful when we're thinking about a state sanctioned violence and how that disproportionately harms black and indigenous folks. Mm -hmm. Like the way you're talking about this mm -hmm. is, is really, uh, is really, is really harmful. And so for some person who's never really thought about mm -hmm. how they've considered maybe the role of race or identity or something, it can feel like a bear. I've just brought a bear to this conversation. Right. Right. And so you want to either fight. So that means getting defensive. Well, that's not what I mean. I have yeah. black friends or whatever yeah. people yeah. say like yeah. when they're yeah. getting defensive or they freeze, they shut down, they cross yeah. their arms, they're silent. Yeah. I'm fine. I'm fine. Right. We've yeah. heard that. Yeah. Or you flee. They leave the conversation. They're mm -hmm. like, well, I don't I don't you're being rude. I don't want to do this. And then they leave. And so what Brave Space is saying is the bear is not there. You have to tell yourself the bear isn't there. You're just having a difficult conversation. So stick in it. Mm -hmm. And so we can't really do the work of addressing so much of the challenges that aren't new. It may feel new to some folks. Right. <laughs> the challenges are new unless we really stick through these kind of difficult conversations and be self-aware that, oh, I feel that this is a bear, but it's really yeah. not. And really telling yourself that so you can stick in it. And sometimes that means in the conversation saying like, wait a minute, can you give me like a minute to yeah. breathe? Yeah. I tell people, you know, what the, the, the way to get the bear out is to breathe. Yeah. Like, take some deep breaths and then say, give me a second and then get back into it. Yeah. Stick to and be present for the whole conversation. Absolutely. So then... Melissa, how does this translate into crafting or creating a school, a community center, a classroom into a brave space? And I'm not trying to take away from, from the work or the workshops that you do, recognizing, but you know, I can imagine folks sitting here listening to this saying, oh my gosh, this is the this is the missing piece. You know, because if you think about over the last say five, even 10 years, right? The, the sort of um, transitional sort of uh, components that have been tossed at schools around rethinking the way that they are engaging in creating, and I'm going to use a safe space for the moment, right? Because that's where a lot of the conversation around schools have been. I'm going to create a whole different way to think about discipline, a whole different way to think about, you know, conflict resolution within my own classrooms, right? And yet what we're talking about here is taking that one step further, right? And so what are some of those sort of tangible, low-hanging fruit sort of pieces that if I'm a teacher and I want to create, get shift from a safe space, which is what my school's been advocating for many years, to a brave space, what is it that, that I should be doing or how should I be thinking about that? And again, not to take away from the bigger, broader work that you're doing, so not, not to give away all, all, all of the hidden secrets inside of the way that you walk 
folks through the process, but what what should a, an individual classroom teacher, for example, be thinking about as it relates to brave space versus just safe space? And I know we talked about the difference between the two, but, you know, this is not some bolts sort of moment. I'm a third grade teacher, um, you know, in a community that may or may not be uh, embracing the sort of change that I want to see happening in my classroom. So how do I get there? Yeah. So I like to tell folks that change starts with you. So you start Mm -hmm. thinking about what is in your sphere of influence. You might not be able to shift the disciplinary practices and the choices and everything that from the broader school or district or whatever, but what can you shift? And one thing that you can shift is what is your level of vulnerability within the classroom? So something that can be as simple, it sounds simple, but for many people it's very difficult. It's saying like when you're wrong. Right. Like it can be very difficult for teachers to say to students, especially, well, it don't even matter whether they're third graders or they're <laughs> high school. Yeah. High school, matter. To say, you know what? I told you all that homework was due last week and I just told you it was due today and that's wrong. Like yeah. I messed up. Yeah. Or I said I was going to do this and I didn't do that. That's my fault. Right. Yeah. So part of a brave space requires vulnerability. Like, like when I said, uh, oh, I'm feeling this bear. I need a moment to breathe. That's vulnerable. I'm telling you, this is very difficult for me. Yeah. Um, so practicing that vulnerability, which also helps students to, to be able to do the same. And so that vulnerability, we can see that with students when they do something wrong, when they've caused harm to another student or they didn't they didn't uh, turn their homework in, whatever it might be. Or if you're you talking about shifting disciplinary practices, if we if you're doing restorative circles or restorative mm-hmm, justice work, mm-hmm. that requires so much vulnerability. Yeah. Right. Yeah. To be able to confront the person you harmed or the person who harmed you and be able to say, like, this is how this impacted me. And this is this is how we need to figure out how to be back in relationship with each other. That requires so much vulnerability. So starting to practice that and model that with our students really goes a long way. I would also, also was paired with that vulnerability is accountability. So mm-hmm. in your sphere of influence, how can I demonstrate how I'm being held accountable and how I'm holding you accountable within this classroom space? And it doesn't necessarily have to be just like disciplinary stuff, right? It doesn't have to necessarily be like just grading. Like thinking about what is it? What are some other systems within your classroom to let people know this is how we care for each other? Right. Like this is how this this is how we engage with each other. Mm-hmm. I work with teachers to create r- rules of engagement, for example, and they they can call it whatever they want. Usually, I say say something like guidelines or like mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> but, right, um, right. Whatever and, language works with for you. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So it could be things like we don't talk over people. Right. And if we do, then there may be something in response to like you, you don't get uh, you don't you don't get to necessarily talk this round. So I have some students, some folks that have you ever had talking pieces? Yeah. Like, yeah. You have to have the talking piece in order to share. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you for some reason talk without the talking piece, then when it comes back around, like you got to get skipped. Like it doesn't yeah. have to be anything big. Like yeah. you got to go to yeah. the office, like whatever is built into your system. Um, so thinking about uh what those guidelines will be, I encourage teachers to create those guidelines with your students. Like that first two or three days, 
it's take like max two class periods to really mm-hmm. come up with that or have some have a framework and students can edit it and, and they right. can come up with the consequence, right? Yeah. So right, if you have something right. like extra recess time or TV time or whatever it might be, then a consequence is, you know, if you violate this, then you don't get you don't get that extra reading time or you don't get that extra whatever time. And then when it when you start doing when students begin to violate throughout the, the school year, then you're like, well, looks like you're not gonna have TV time. They're like, what? How is it? We agreed to this. You actually, you came up with this. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, you're right. And yeah. so they have a bit more buy-in and they also recognize that they, students, not just students, adults, everybody tends mm-hmm. to do a little bit better when they understand what the potential consequences are as right. well as the potential rewards. And they can adjust themselves uh, in a bit better way. So really thinking about what what do I have control over? How might I be able to shift my classroom practices and then start to figure out what does it look like to build um, a coalition from there uh, to start thinking about how might this be a practice within our building uh, yeah. to rethink what works and what doesn't work? Because teachers rarely and not many schools are teachers able to work with each other like in easy ways. Right. right? right. And so right. there may be a teacher that's really doing some really dynamic uh work within their classroom and, and, and classroom engagement or behavior management, but no other teacher gets to see that. Right. So right, thinking about right. um, if we're going to start leveling this up, how do we work within our building, our principal, whatever, for for us to be able to model some of the work from other teachers because they don't get to be seen except from the students in their classroom. Right. And that happens all the time. And it's not just about the content that we're teaching. It's about the relationships that we're fostering. Um, absolutely. I appreciate you uh, sort of bringing that piece um, to the conversation. I always like to to close the program, the conversation, typically with sort of a high lob. You know, there's somebody out there sort of in the hinterland, they're hearing this and want to talk about how to get started. But I'm going to shift this time because I want to sort of follow up on our final concept here around creating the sort of the starting and creating that sort of brave space in your classroom by asking a question that I assume that folks would be thinking about. So let's assume that I do this and it's and it's wildly successful because we know that if folks put that time and effort in it, it certainly can be and have that ripple effect, hopefully throughout my school. How does this work translate in your experience? And I realize this is a big, giant, broad question, but how does it translate back into an individual child or community's experience? So what I'm trying to get at is we can do these amazing things in schools and we do all the time. There is amazing work happening across the country, around the world in schools, not all of them, but but there are just really amazing things. And yet sometimes that amazing work gets lost when that individual child goes home or goes back into their community, into their neighborhood. It happens all the time in every setting that we can imagine. So how how can a teacher creating a brave space sort of push the brave aspects of that space into the rest of that child's life? What does that look like? Yeah, so I would challenge that it actually gets lost. Yeah. Because many of us can think about that one teacher from second grade or yeah. that one yeah. like, teacher, like we're adults and we yeah. remember Oh, fondly, right? Yes. Because it's very tangible to us. Yes. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I would challenge that it actually gets lost. Now, is there may not be a system in place 
that they're able that it's able to be implemented smoothly the way it is mm-hmm. in the classroom but the criteria or the the essence is still there what i like to tell teachers um and also what i believe as a parent is i'm not raising a child i'm shaping an adult right and right. so if we're I believing that. that we are shaping adults then we're t- we're also sharing with them these are tools for you to use for your life right so what does it look like to what does it mean to not interrupt people when they're talking because that's a practice you should use like regardless because essentially what you're saying is when you interrupt people is what i have to say is more important than whatever you have to say what would that mean in a corporate space when you're in a position of power and you always are giving that energy Mm y'all practicing that in the classroom would be is really important to believe that people are coming to this conversation with the with positive intent even if they say something harmful and letting them know hey that thing hurt Mm-hmm. And they don't mm-hmm. shift, but if they're like, "Who cares?" Okay, now you know who they are. Right. There's a right. good chance they're like, "Oh, I didn't know. Oh my gosh, I'm yeah. so sorry." Yeah. Now let's think about what does it mean for us to be in relationship, knowing you know now what is hurtful, and you're now now working to not do that anymore. What does it mean for us to continue to engage? To practice that in the classroom is, is something you'll need forever. Yeah. But saying that as an educator, like this isn't just for our classroom. I'm, pre- I'm, I'm preparing you for the world. Mm-hmm. And whether I'm working with corporate clients or K-12 or whatever, I tell I tell my teachers, y'all are my favorite people to work with because you are literally shaping the future. Yep. Our children are spending most of their childhood with you. Yep. And so really thinking about and reminding teachers of their power is so important. And and also recognizing what is in their sphere of control. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't necessarily control parents. Yep. We can't control the communities that they're coming from or going to. And so I, I would, I would challenge us to not uh, feel like put that burden on mm-hmm. ourselves. And instead, we really deeply invest in the student and help them recognize their multiple ways in which you can apply the stuff that we're talking about today. And having think about how much you in, in, incorporate that in curriculum, how much you incorporate that in the activity to think about how we can use our brain space tactics or our classroom uh, uh, guidelines, whatever it might be. In other areas, when you're on your football team, when you're working in your Girl Scout troop or whatever, like how might you be able to use this? And like, oh, I can see. Or even when you're engaging with your parent. Yeah. Right. Uh, What does it mean to like believe that your parent is coming to this coming to this conversation or this disciplinary action with positive intent because you're like, okay, what are they trying to do here? Yeah. Okay, they're trying to help me not be a slob, which is why I have to keep my room clean. Like, you having that in your mind and helping them think through that, I think, helps prepare the students with the hope that they will that same lesson that we remember fondly of that favorite teacher we had mm-hmm. in first, second, mm-hmm. third grade, that they will also remember that fondly and take that with them outside the classroom. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you are 100% correct. Um, you know, certainly, certainly, certainly my experience and think back about those folks that had such a powerful impact on my life. And, and it is lifelong. Those, those impacts are almost always lifelong. So, you know, thank you so much, um, Melissa, for joining us today, taking time out of your day, share your story. Um, again, I cer- certainly appreciate um, that so very much and for sharing your work and the work that you're doing in and around our communities and being on the program today. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Enjoyed being here. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. 
I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.